You are audacious, fool, to seek to question the motives of your emperor. Yet I shall tell you that the one you seek is called Captain Marvell, officer of the intergalactic Cree fleet. Well do our war annals recall how fiercely, how valorously he fought against us in the war for control of the satellite galaxy NGC-205. If our age-old enemies have sent a battle hero such as he to Earth, it must be of vast importance to them. We must learn why. Welcome to Artifacts of Infinity, where we dive into the infinite abyss of Marvel's cosmic universe. I'm Jonathan Hudson. I'm Everett Christensen. This is episode 5, and today we'll be covering Captain Marvel Volume 1, issues 1, 2, and 3. Okay, so I remember my friends and I talking about the different Captain Marvels on the playground in elementary school. So here's a real quick run-through uh, of the insider baseball around this character and what the confusion was. So in October of 1939, Timely Comics, owned by Martin Goodman, releases Marvel Comics number 1. Late in 1939, likely December, uh, Wiz Comics number 1 came out, and issue 2 featured Captain Marvel. Uh, this is Billy Batson Shazam, and this annoyed Martin Goodman. That series ran until 1953. Uh, Timely Comics becomes Atlas Comics in 1951. In 1961, it becomes Marvel Comics. In 1966, Myron Fass uh, Publishing Company Countrywide releases Captain Marvel number one, featuring an android that absolutely no one cares about and uh, with a pretty lame power. Uh, he only appeared in a few issues. In 1967, Martin Goodman orders Stan Lee to create a character for Marvel Comics called Captain Marvel. Stan seeks assistance from Gene Colan with Roy Thomas and Frank Giacoya, and they come up with Marvell. Martin Goodman is, is happy about this, and he orders Captain Marvel to show up in a self-titled series. Uh... Countrywide gets sued, it gets settled out of court. In the 70s, DC Comics purchases Countrywide, and there's a lawsuit following that, deciding basically that Marvel Comics could keep the name and the title Captain Marvel, and DC had to use something else for titles, causing them to go with Shazam and, and other such things. That said, boldly stated on the first issue of Captain Marvel Solo, it proclaims that Captain Marvel's appearance in Marvel Super Heroes 12 and 13 were so popular that they immediately gave him his own solo book. You can read more about all of this in detail in the introduction to Captain Marvel Masterworks Volume 1 and in Marvel Comics The Untold Story by Sean Happ. Now, the last time we left Captain Marvel, he was about to duel with Sentry 459, who had become even larger and more powerful than during the conflict with the Fantastic Four. Let's dive right in with Captain Marvel number one, Out of the Holocaust, A Hero. Written by Roy Thomas, pencils by Gene Colan, inking by Vince Coletta, lettering by Artie Simic, and fire extinguishers by Irving Forbush. So Captain Marvel in this number one, he standing before the starscape with planets hanging in the background, and his arms are outstretched. He's wearing that 
green and white cream military uniform and it looks like he's challenging the entire universe to take a shot at him i really like this cover and i think it's a good interesting way to launch him into his own solo yeah i really notice especially in all of this how very traditionally heroic uh like the pencils by Gene Colan tend to make Mar look, there's something about it that really resonates with me in a way that most like traditionally heroic looking figures don't. I think it might be the coloration. Yeah, it's an interesting choice. Um, Roy Thomas talked about that a little bit, uh, saying that he kind of basically figured that there were a whole bunch of of characters already colored in primary colors and so this was one of the the palettes that he recommended and it's it's what they ended up going with so issue number one opens with the fight already underway um this is really an end media res beginning and the fight between uh captain marvel and 45 are Trading blows with Unibeam and punches, Captain Marvel attempting to lead the sentry away from the nuclear warheads on the military base, and they're both sort of just expositing while they're fighting, which is, you know, in comics, a really great way of setting the scene while not letting the pacing die down even a little bit. Yep, and Mar is struggling with all of his might to stand his ground against the century and the century is just overwhelmingly powerful but and he's not really able to to phase him at all um even with the bits blasted off that he manages with his unibeam uh the century just self-repairs and keeps coming but mar doesn't give up uh, one thing that jumped out at me is when he self-repairs, he grabs the pieces that are blasted off and eats them. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a wonderful little bit where he's just chomping down on nuts. It looks like nuts and bolts, even though he is clearly yeah. not made of nuts and bolts. Yeah, it's pretty funny. But back on the Kree ship, Colonel Young Rog muses that he has sent Marvell to die. Because he has vowed that Una, the lovely medic, shall be his alone. Marvel, Marvel, and Century continue to fight with some extremely kinetic pages. Marvel's being tossed around like a rag doll and really getting banged up pretty good. Base security rushes to back him up, but the Sentry projects an invisible wall, keeping them all out and really reminiscent of the cone of impenetrability yeah so this is where the story takes a bit of like a sharp left because we immediately go from the fight to back to the hotel where jeremy logan who runs the uh hotel is snooping through walter lawson's that's the alter ego of captain marvel uh his personal belongings and finds a strange case and He's convinced that Captain Marvel is a commie spy or some such, and so he speeds off into the night, not knowing that he's triggered something in the case. We cut back to the fight and see that Carol Danvers has been trapped inside the Cree Cone of Shame 2.0 with Marvel and the Century. 
Mar leaps into action to save Carol, who is a bit damselly, but it's really early in her appearances, so I'm just going to give this one a pass. Also, at this point, I mean, she is walking around the base in her normal kind of day-to-day work attire. She wasn't prepared for a fight, you know, and it, I don't imagine she has to fight killer robots on the daily or she'd be a lot more prepared. Yeah, I mean, at, at this point, she seems like she is a head of security, as in does a lot of paperwork and does a lot of interviewing, not does a lot of tackling dudes. Yeah, that that makes sense. And uh, outside the barrier, the military police are trying to break in, while Mar inside keeps leading the sentry away from the troops and away from the nuclear arsenal. Captain Marvel tightens up his unibeam down as much as possible, and he opens up a seam in the sentry's armor. The uh, captain then engages the magnetic charge, which that's what he used earlier in the Marvel superheroes to blow up a rock and then put it back together. And in, he instead uses this to crush the sentry's circuitry from inside, causing the android to implode with a fiery thwoom. I really like that thinking outside of the box. I, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, if his beam can both destroy and, re- like, reverse that, then going from a neutral state to the reverse of an explosion, I mean, that seems like a really great use of the magic of magnetism to me. Definitely. So we come back to Yon Rog, who is furious and pouty that Mar and Carol have survived back on the ship. Uh, Colonel Yon Rog immediately tries to frame Marvell as a traitor to Ronin, who we met earlier, and to the Imperial Minister, who just don't care, and they chide Yon Rog for endangering the mission for his personal vendetta. And the issue closes on Mar overlooking the base. Carol Danvers, the old man, the earthling soldiers, all now look at me as a hero. What would they say if they knew that the one they call Captain Marvel may one day become the most deadly menace of all? Next up, we have Captain Marvel number two, The Spaceman and the Super Scroll. This was written by Roy Thomas, pencils by Gene Colan, inked by Vince Coletta, lettered by Sam Rosen, and edited by Stan Lee. On this cover, we've got the Super Scroll all flamed on and tossing fireballs at Captain Marvel, who twists awkwardly to crack back with the Unibeam. This cover's great preview for the interior. Yeah, the the fights in these next couple of issues are like really effortlessly dynamic, and it's hard to appropriately describe but there's a lot of movement a lot of kinetic lines and a lot of people doing things and not a lot of static posing which is very different from a lot of the comics that we've reviewed up and until this point in the 60s yeah it feels more modern in that sense and i really like that so we begin with the scroll emperor viewing marvel on earth uh, he, having seen the increased creativity on the planet, despite that Earth is of little importance, the Emperor surmises that there's some new strategic value on Earth, and thus there's a part for it in the centuries-old intergalactic rivalry that they have with the Kree. 
To that end, the Emperor summons up the Super Scroll, who's been banished after his defeat at the hands of the Fantastic Four and of Thor. And we'll double back to that Thor confrontation sooner rather than later. We learn that Super Scroll is enamored of Enel, the Emperor's daughter, who doesn't seem to reciprocate. Yeah, and the Super Scroll here is now looking a, a lot more like what we expect out of him in his modern appearances. He's a green scroll with a kind of craggy chin, and he's wearing this purple and black jumpsuit that is with like big flared out shoulders. And that's pretty much the same uniform we're going to see him in for the next 50 odd years. Like he he doesn't he doesn't change his look until very, very recently in uh, modern comics. I just want to take a moment to to shout out. We get Machino the robotic pet dog, and I love when these kinds of things show up. Right? It's such a wonderful little uh, bit, but Anel is basically just using this adorable robotic dog to taunt the super scroll. She's just and... smack-talking him. Now, we haven't gotten to the introduction of Anel yet. We're definitely going to have to find time for it because her introduction is just completely wild. And I adore her for her emotional honesty, uh, even in the face of, you know, really poorly behaved scroll men. Definitely. In the Emperor's Throne Room... We learn that Captain Marvell is well known to the Scroll Command. He's considered a battle hero, and as such, Earth must be important, and the Scroll need to know why. I love this full page panel. Uh, we have like the shadowy face of the Scroll Emperor in the background, as we have a really great war comic Cree versus Scroll confrontation in the foreground, and it really makes me feel like Mar here is veteran of a thousand battles, you know, just intrepid spaceman of the Kree. And it makes me believe that the scroll are like, this guy is a big deal. If he's here, there must be a big deal at hand. Let's, we have to do something about this. It puts the pressure on for the scroll, this panel. Definitely. And, uh, because of that threat, Super Scroll is promised any prize short of the crown and death for failure. And the Super Scroll promises that he will not fail. The one named Marvell is doomed, for I secretly desire the hand of the king's daughter in marriage, so that even the crown shall one day be mine. No one may stand in my way and hope to live. And about sixty years later, Dude becomes king of the scrolls. I mean, that's just that's just great right there. He he had a goal and he stuck to it through through thick and thin. How many characters can say that? That's good. When we're going back and reading these things, um, like Ben and Alicia from the Fantastic Four, Kalert and becoming the Scroll Emperor. These are plot lines that were started back here in the 1960s and have really only finally like matriculated in the last 5 to 10. It's kind of interesting to see that these things have taken that long. 
Yeah, I was I was thinking about that with Ben and Alicia too. You're right. It it is interesting that it took that long. So we return to Mar, who is going back to the hotel to change back to being Doctor Lawson, and he pushes off the responsibility for saving the base and battling the sentry onto his superiors in his mind. He's monologuing to himself, kind of trying to explain away why he's helping these earthlings, as if he's grappling with the idea of being a hero to them. But he's caught off guard when he learns that his breathing potion has run out. Yeah, and to make matters worse... Jeremy Lodge has stolen the Carriol Cylinder, and we learn that there's a miniature nuke attack to it, attached to it, and there's only two hours to find it before the nuke detonates. Jeremy is headed to the military base with said nuke when the Super Scroll detects the radiation factor of the Carriol Cylinder. So he assumes that the signature is Marvell. So he assaults Jeremy Logan and finds out that this is not the captain that the Super Scroll is looking for. That captain has very conveniently decided to scout out not as Dr. Lawson, but as Captain Marvel. I think this is the first time his decision to have an alter ego really shows up as an unwelcome complication. Yeah, the captain hears Jeremy Logan screaming for help, and the Super Scroll throws the guy off a cliff, and Mar just barely manages to break his fall, but it's a bad landing, and he surmises that Jeremy may already be dead. Captain Marvel can't even check on him because he's instantly tossed into a vicious melee with the Super Scroll, who abandons the carryall cylinder. It's an intense and kinetic fight as all of the powers of the Fantastic Four are arrayed against our dauntless spaceman in a running battle that crosses a military base. Yeah, he's getting... Like, the captain gets sucker-punched by Invisible Super Scroll, and he is, you know, being strangled by stretchy arms, and eventually, using a fireball hurled with the strength of the thing, Super Scroll manages to render Captain Marvel helpless and hauls him back to his ship. I think this really goes a long way to helping build up just how tough the Super Scroll is. You know, we've seen him a couple times in Fantastic Four, and now seeing him toss around Mar like this, I think it really goes to kind of show how how tough he is as an opponent. Yeah, I mean, we don't really have a, a good grasp, I would say, yet on how strong Marvel is. But this episode really shows what a top class opponent the Super Scroll is. For sure. So Jan Rog, of course, uses this moment to gloat to Una about her man being defeated. Yet even as the sinister scroll emissary zooms off, the unconscious Marvell beneath his arm, an all-but-forgotten cylinder lies on the ridge only a few hundred yards outside the base, a cylinder which will soon explode, forging both countryside and base into one blazing nuclear inferno. Lastly, we have Captain Marvel number three, From the Ashes of Defeat, written by Roy Thomas, pencils by Gene Colan, inked by Vince Coletta, 
lettered by Sam Rosen and edited by Stan Lee. So we have here Captain Marvel strapped to the table while the Super Scroll is throwing a switch in the foreground, activating some kind of device. And this looks like a classic James Bond moment. Like, no Mr. Bond, I expect you to die is about this cover and i find it delightful i didn't think about the that looking like a bond cover but it really does that's a good that's a good thought and uh right on the first page we've got mar over the super scroll shoulder unconscious well he the super scroll thinks he's unconscious but he's not but he's extremely weakened and uh, the Super Scroll takes him back to the Scroll Shuttle and removes his helmet to use the Psycho Probe. Now, if you've seen the Captain Marvel movie that came out recently, the one with Carol Danvers as the main character, this scene looks incredibly familiar as the Scroll beams play back the Captain's memories to get an idea of where the Sentry is who Mar has pretending to be, uh, and so on and and so forth. But this is pretty much just straight out of the movie. They have to have used this as reference. Of course, that's also when Mar decides that he's got to break free by overloading his wristbands with the Unibeam. Discretion is clearly the better part of Valor here as Marvel wallops his super scroll and then immediately takes to the sky. Yeah, Mar flies up into the upper atmosphere where the Super Scroll figures that he's just committing suicide and he'll die. And that's because the Super Scroll doesn't know about the Kree ship cloaked in the aura of negativism, the Hellion. I love that name for this ship. Jan Rog, of course, tries to kill the captain by not helping, but Marvell makes it to the ship anyway, forcing the colonel to let him onto the ship by Cree military code. Yeah, and in fact, we have a, a few pages here of Mar maneuvering his superior, who's trying to walk the line between thwarting Mar at every turn and not being in dereliction of duty. So Mar ends up actually going over Jan Rog's head straight to the Imperial Minister, and he uses the excuse of the long-standing blood feud between the Kree and the Skrull empires to gain permission to return to Earth and prevent the nuclear blast. And because of this, Mar and Una get to share another extremely quick, teary goodbye, and I'm actually, like, kind of tired of this because I don't feel like Una deserves all of this bad treatment. She's only ever been kind and competent and, like, sometimes audacious. And, like, this is pushing her to the back way too much. For serious. Meanwhile, the Super Scroll has been using the information gleaned from the Psycho Probe to pretend to be Dr. Lawson. And though he gains access to the Century, Carol Danvers is instantly suspicious, as some of the things the Scroll says just don't add up. Mar swoops in before the Super Scroll can do any damage, 
in a panel that really highlights all of the best parts of these issues. There's these swooping motion lines that give you a very defined feeling of movement through the space. Marvel's heroic pose as he picks the super scroll, pretending to be him, pretending to be Dr. Lawson up off of the ground. And even the sound effects seem to be going fast with a swish. They get a death duel in the sky, during which Mar manages to get the upper hand in combat by tricking Super Scroll into using his hypnotism while holding a mirror, which is hilarious, but is a garbage into this fight. Yeah, so I get this reveal is foreshadowed back on the Hellion by a single throwaway line, but it doesn't stop from being anticlimactic in what's otherwise an incredibly dynamic and tense two-issue-long confrontation. I do at least really like the art where they show that. It's kind of cool-looking, but yeah, it's like you're going along in this huge fight, and then you're just like, what? Yeah... Captain Marvel does manage to stop the cylinder from going nuclear and then orders the Super Scroll to flee into the furthest reaches of space. And now free from fighting, Captain Marvel checks up on hotel clerk Jeremy Logan, who's now in a coma, and that ties up every single plot point. If you want to read these issues we've covered today, you can find them collected in Essential Captain Marvel Volume 1 and Marvel Masterworks Captain Marvel Volume 1, as well as digitally on Comixology and Marvel Unlimited, or you can check your local library. If you would like to know more about Captain Marvel, uh, there's the untold legend of Captain Marvel that actually uh, goes over the confrontation on the satellite galaxy that the scroll emperor was talking about and gives you really more of a backstory as to why the scroll take captain marvel so seriously uh now as far as marvel and scrolls go there's this arc in young avengers uh 9 through 12 called i believe family matters where we get into some more of how Mar himself interacted with the scrolls, and some very interesting things are revealed, and Clark is one of the um, main characters of that storyline. And for the Super Scroll himself, uh, of course, we have to mention Annihilation Super Scroll, which is potentially the best Kalert story ever, and definitely my favorite because it shows so many different sides of this, at times deeply heroic, at times deeply despicable, complicated Scroll guy who was handed a, a really rough deal and managed to forge a legend for himself. And I personally really love that storyline. And I really love the Super Scroll. I think he's great. You can reach us with questions or comments at Artifacts of I on Twitter and at Artifacts of Infinity at gmail.com. If sacred places are spared the ravages of war, then make all places sacred. And if the holy people are to be kept harmless from war, then make all peoples holy. 
This has been Artifacts of Infinity. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Everett. This is edited by Everett. We will see you in the infinite cosmos.